0: what's been happening here is we've been talking about the two souls. And um, we spent two classes talking about the godly soul, two classes talking about the animal soul. First we talked about the nature of the godly soul and we identified the godly soul by the word Pnimi, which I'm not going to explain at the moment. Then we talked about the need for the godly soul to connect the god through Torah and Mitzvahs. Then we talked about the animal soul, and the word that we employed to describe the animal soul was tivi. It's very core, it's fixed in a certain character, a certain nature, which it cannot exceed or crack or break out of. And last week, we talked about what the animal soul does. Now, I really should move on. I really should leave the godless soul and animal soul alone and move on to the next issue in the Tanya. The Tanya talks about the Bainini, about the intermediate. And as you know, the Tanya by definition is a book of Pneumia Satayra. That means to say its purpose is to discuss the intermediate using a mystical model, using the, the Zohar's definition rather than the classic definition. But I still want, I want to spend one more evening talking about the two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul. And I'm going to talk about them now together. And I I suppose I'm going to finish tonight's class setting the stage for the next class, which we're going to have, where we're going to talk about what is to me one of the most important discussions in the Tanya, the war, the godly soul and the animal soul are engaged in a war. And in Mitzvah Shem, like I said, next time we'll discuss it, there's only one thing you have to know right now about the war between the godly soul and the animal soul, that in the world of the souls there is no United Nations, there's no peacekeepers, and there's no such thing as compromises and ceasefires. Everyone is fighting to win 100% and that's all they're going to settle for. That's the world in which they live. It's a black and white world. But tonight I want to discuss the divine soul and the animal soul again and juxtapose them, compare and contrast them rather than talk about distinctly, separately, as we've done. One of the many different ways of articulating the distinction between the godly and the animal soul is by the words ma and ban. Ma and ban, I suppose, to some of you are meaningless. Let me give you a little background. Hashem's name, God's name, is spelled yud Vofke. The primary name of God is yud vofke, Yud hey, and then of course a vav and then a hey. The numerical equivalent of yud Vofke is twenty six. However, there's something called milui. You can write out the word Yudke Vovke. When you write out the word yud Vovke, yud is yud vav Hey can be spelled in three different ways: hey yud, hey hey, and hey alef. And vav can be spelled in three different ways: vav yud vav, vav aleph vav, and vav vav. The result is, if you write out the four letters yud ke, vav ke, you'll get either ten letters or nine. And in Kabbalah, there's, there's a model called Ab Sagma Ban. 72, 63, 45, and 52. And that's not uh, a, a code for a quarterback. Okay? <laughs> these are names of the Abishter. And there's much discussion in Kabbalah about these respective names, which we're not going to talk about at the moment. We will discuss only the two lowest levels, called Ma and Ban. Ma is 45 and Ban is 52. And I'll go straight to the point. It, 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 just the technical, if you spell all the three letters with an aleph, in other words, yud, Vav, dal is always going to be 20, he aleph, vav aleph, vav, and he aleph. He aleph is 6, and he aleph is 6 is 12, vav aleph vav is 13. 12 and 13 is 25, 25 and 20 is 45. If you spell it with heis, Vav, dal, he hey, vav vav, hey, He, it becomes 52. Ma and ban has the numerical equivalent of odom and Behemoth man and animal. Memhe, ma, is adam is man. Ban, 52, is Behemoth. And the divine soul and the animal soul are ma and ban. They're man and animal. That's what they are. And there's much discussion in Kabbalah and in Hasidus about the, the uh, distinction between these two concepts. What's the mystical concept of adam, of man, and of course in this context of the divine soul What's the mystical concept of behema, of animal, and in context, of course, the animal soul? And there's various different ways of articulating it. Here's the first. In Kabbalah, man and animal are compared to eagle and yoishir. This is Kabbalah, igulim and yoishir. This is Kabbalah. I'm going to explain this to the best of my limited knowledge, and hopefully... um, Igulam Hayesha means circles and lines or a circle and a line a sphere versus a line Kabbalah uses very material analogs very physical examples to illustrate mystical ideas and it's very very critical to have background in knowing how to interpret these analogs because otherwise you come away with virtually laughable insights into what Kabbalah is saying and the problem is not Kabbalah the problem is one's interpretation in Kabbalah a circle is an, anal- is an allegory, is an analog for the Ein Sof a circle is a muscle a circle is an analog for the Ein Sof and for a very simple reason because a circle by definition does not have any points it has no distinguishing aspect, so that's the idea of a perfect circle it's not only there's no top and there's no bottom there's absolutely no frame of reference, right? If the globe did not have land and sea, or hills and valleys and mountains, a perfect sphere has no points. To use a philosophical form, it's actually an expanded point. It's It, it has no distinguishing aspects. And therefore it's an analog for the Ein Saf, because this is what Ein Saf is. Ein Saf is infinite. But infinite also means plain, and nondescript, there's no definition. there's no aspects in infinity. Infinity is not just a lot of different things until infinity, because that really cannot exist. It's an existence that, because it's infinite, has no aspects, no distinguishable aspects whatsoever. So a circle becomes a metaphor, becomes an allegory for the itself. A line, on the other hand, becomes an analog. For something which is finite, something which is limited, yoisha, a straight line, for the obvious reasons that it has distinguishable points, at the top and the middle and the bottom, right? When you go to school and they do this whole mathematical thing with you about the line and the points on the line and, and so forth and so on, a line has distinct separate points and it therefore is representative of finity. So in Kabbalah, when they want to talk about something which is infinite, they compare it to a circle. And when they want to talk about something being finite, they compare it to a line. So if I asked you, what's better, the circle of the line? You would all assume that the answer I'd like to hear, and of course we we'll love to please people, so you'll say what I want to hear, the circle is advantageous over the line. Here's the interesting thing. That is all right. And please listen carefully to my language, okay? If you have background in Kabbalah, let me do the teaching. Don't bring what you... Your, the material from someplace else, leave someplace else. That is all right that the circle, the ego, which is einstoth, is called katnus, katnut, immature, underdeveloped. And the line, which is an analog for finity, is gadlus, gadlut, it's for expansiveness, and development, and maturity. In other words, Arizal says something completely counterintuitive. The circle, which is a metaphor for infinity, is called immature, underdeveloped, unmantikl, not developed. And the line, which is representative of something which is finite, he calls it godless. He calls it expansive, mature, developed, opened up, and so forth. And there's extensive... This is a statement from Kisve Arizal. And um, I, I don't know if earlier Kabbalists would agree with this. For example, I don't know if the Padis would agree with this. This is, this is a typical of the Arizal. And in Chabad, Hasidus, which is so heavily anchored in the Ka- Kabbalah of the Arizal, This particular commentary plays a very vital role in how Hasidus employs, exploits uh, Kabbalah. And this is one of the things we want to talk about. Why would you call infinity immature? And why would you call finity a line mature and developed? And the answer is, because infinity does not allow itself to be broken up into aspects infinity is defined by its being singular and unified altogether finity on the other hand something which is limited its character its definition is that it opens up it becomes distinguished little aspects and from each little aspect comes smaller aspects that open up more and more and more and more and the fact that infinity is has no room for expansion has no room for development makes it immature and small and the affinity because of its ability to expand and open up and encompass details is considered godless developed, mature developed and opened up I'm going to give you a very simple illustration for this what does it mean to grow up? what does it mean to mature as a human being? one of the basic, one of those obvious aspects of growing up is to appreciate nuance. Subtlety. You know, Nothing is simple is a profoundly grown-up fact of life that children have yet to learn. And child and adult has nothing to do with biology. It has to do with the development of the mind. You can be 70 years old and think like a child. You can be 15 and have a much more developed mind. But one of the things that is typical of underdeveloped people is their tendency towards generalization. You know, big, broad, sweeping truths. There's no such thing as big, broad, sweeping truths. There are subtle, detailed nuances of truth. Truth is about depth and depth is about detail and detail is about distinction, separateness. And depth and detail and distinction doesn't necessarily have to be confusing, although it seems confusing at the outset. Ultimately, it creates thoroughness, clarity. And when one generalizes, the tendency towards generalization is typically, is classically an immature reaction. And there's so many, many, so many different illustrations for this. And the simplest is the difference between the way the heart operates and the way the mind operates. What's the difference between the heart operates and the mind operates? It's very, very simple. The heart operates in brute force. The nature of human emotion is that it's a power. And the power of the human emotion is rooted in its singularity. You don't experience different emotions at once, you can't. You experience one emotion at a time, and the emotions operate like a wave. It's not a bunch of little aspects that are creating a certain force it creates a unified energy that just pushes, right? When you have an experience of fear, for example, the the power of the emotion of fear is how simple it is. Simple means there's no subtlety, there's no aspects of fear. There's no, I'm afraid of this, and this, and this, and this. There's just fear. When you have a a passion, you have love, or um, even a sense of awe, which is a much more subtle, it's really a more sophisticated emotion, love works like a wave it sweeps you they use the word being swept away for a reason because this is the nature of the human emotions and the reason human emotions are this way is they're a force that's really not developed its force is in its simplicity and its singularity the human mind is defined fundamentally by its ability, ability to discern, to distinguish to separate between aspects I, you know, I've been a teacher for many years, and for the most part, you teach young people. And um, I was once young myself, and I watch my students making the same mistakes I used to make. And um, I, I've, I coined phrases which, which I think are very credible, and I use them periodically, and they're very relevant at the moment. As a teacher, you will hear from your students all the time the word, basically. Now, I use the word basically also, but I'm entitled because I'm a teacher. So whenever one of my students says basically, I say basically is pseudo-intellectual. And they say, huh? <laughs> basically is not an intelligent term. Basically is almost, this is how I feel. Because what does basically mean? Basically means, let's generalize. Let's not analyze its subtlety, its nuance. It's specificity. It's edelkeit. Let's be general. That's what it that basically means. Right? Another one of my cliches, and this one I own the rights to <laughs> correlation is always simplification. When people learn, there's two levels of learning. An uneducated person's tendency in learning is to compare things to one another. Comparing things is diminishing them, and it's diminishing you. Real learning is about discernment, it's about separation separating things. So the the mind and the heart, the emotion and intellect of a human being represent two concepts. Let's use a a physics term. It's like the wave and the particle principle. The emotions of a human being work basically. They are. They're guttural. They're core. They're basic. And the more basic, the more at the root of the human being the emotions are, the more powerful and simple they are. And of course the best example of this is animal emotions. Animals are much simpler than human beings, and because of that, their emotions are much more powerful because their emotions are not softened, their emotions are not diminished, their emotions are not lessened by their mind. Because that's what the mind that's what an intelligent person's emotion, even when they feel passion, the mind weakens the emotions in general and it adds nuance, adds subtlety. No emotion is simple. One feeling is not the whole story, ever. You know, a person is in love, they're seeing stars, and the world is imaginary, but they know it's not life. When a person is governed by their emotions, it takes them over. Kabbalah therefore says, infinity, igul, is katnos, it's immature, it's underdeveloped. Because infinity is a force. Godliness, I'm going to talk about this momentarily which in the Kabbalistic term, the straight line, which is defined by distinguished points, a higher point, a lower point, an inner point, and an outer point, which are emphatically limited, is called godless, developed, mature. Because the ability to identify distinction and nuance and subtlety, that's sophistication. And the animal soul and the godly soul reflect these two models. The animal soul is actually, the animal soul represents infinity. And the godly soul actually represents finity. Therefore the animal soul is called behema, animal, because it's so basic, it's so core, it's so guttural, it's so singular in its expression. And the animal soul is called Adam because by definition, I'm sorry, the divine soul, is called Adam because by definition the godly soul is defined by its ability to discern, to distinguish, to examine, to go into details, into nuance, into subtlety, and so forth and so on. So everything is backwards. Infinity has a major, major limitation. The limitation of infinity is that it's basically, Kabbalah says that infinity is called kachashech ha Infinity does not distinguish good from evil. Infinity as such treats everybody the same. Why? Infinity doesn't appreciate virtue or demerit. Infinity can tolerate everything and everybody. Now, God, we call God infinite. But God's not infinite. God's everything. God's not only infinity, God's everything. Infinity as such, what's called in Kabbalah, by itself, in and of itself, although it's such a profound idea to contemplate the idea of something being infinite Kabbalah teaches us the Arizal teaches us this becomes a mainstay in Chassidus Chabad is that there's something very very underdeveloped about infinity it's simple another term that's employed in the Maimorim and if anybody's interested in reading up on this I'll tell you where to look this is an incredible discussion but there's no English version of it so (laughs) take out your pen slowly (laughs) it's it's an incredible Haimshech Maimorim from the Rebbe Shab. Take from 99 years ago. Next year it'll be a hundred year universes. He said the Hemshach Etir. Where he has four or five months where he analyzes the divine and animal souls, and the information I'm sharing with you tonight is from there. He uses a different term. Klalut and Pratut. General and specific. Klal and Prat. He says the, the animal soul is compared to ego, to the ain soft to infinity, but ain't soft that functions as a wave. As an indistinguishable force and he calls it clos, everything is general. The godly soul is compared to Yoishet, which means finite, its strength is its pratiyut, its ability to go into nuance and to detail and to subtlety. And of course, there are innumerable, innumerable examples for this. Innumerable examples from this. If you've ever been a student or if you've ever been a teacher, you've had this experience. And I have had this both as a student and as a teacher. So I remember the frustration and as hard as I try, I'm never sensitive enough to the frustration of my students. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, not everybody worked so hard. I, I, I was always a geek, as they say. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking. And when you think, you have ideas. And when you have ideas and you're 16, you love to share them. And when you share them, you get your feet cut off. You understand? <laughs> So either you stop sharing them or you continue getting your feet cut off. Mm-hmm. So this is an experience that I had with one of my teachers, who I was fortunate to have as a teacher, because one of the biggest problems is you may grow up and never have a teacher. And I had this experience again and again. And I remember being so <coughs> disappointed with his insensitivity until I watched myself repeating the performance with my own students. And I understood the dynamic. You go to a class. My There's almost too many on the meeting. There's too many on the do Go to a class. A teacher teaches. Now the teacher's telling you a story or he's, you know, he's saying something very basic. Basic is pseudo-intellectual. Okay, if you publish this, you're a god I own the rights. You can do <laughs> the business together. Okay, we can make millions. Basically, is pseudo-intellectual. And what's the other one? Correlation is always simplification. I got a few more, okay? <laughs> I got a whole yeah, collection of, of, of useless adages that matter only in... Graduate school of university. Nobody else cares about this kind of stuff. Nobody knows what it means. Uh, <laughs> so you go to a class, assuming your teacher is teaching you more than eight, one plus one is two. Classes are complex. That's what learning is. Learning is not the same thing over and over again. That's entertainment. Learning is developing an idea and opening it up like a flower. Details. Real knowledge is defined by details and the discernment, the separation between aspects. So you go to a class, listen to a lecture, it's engaging, it's interesting, you got it, but you're overwhelmed. A lot of new information, a lot of new form, and a lot of depth, a lot of brain juice necessary to process it. So you you know, you sit in the class and you take notes, class finishes, you look at your notes, you review, you think about it you wait a day or two, you come back to your teacher, you come back to your professor, you come back to your rabbi, and say, would you mind if I give you back your class in my own words? Which is the typical human response to learning. Who can blame anybody for wanting to repeat things in their own words? It's very useful, has tremendous advantages. Repeating things in your own words is incredibly valuable because it's a sign that you truly understand it. It's the beginning of creativity and learning, which is the next step. You gather information, you process information, you understand information, and you take it to the next level. But most of us are very quick to the trigger. We're basically, we don't have enough patience. Why? Because we're frustrated. We don't understand. We don't understand fully. You go to a lecture, you get information, it's almost like you're feeling it. And you know what emotions are about. They're basic. They're like a wave. Knowledge is not basic, it's not a wave, it's always subtle. So you go to a class, you get the information, you listen to what the professor says. How many times have people said after a class, I don't know what took him an hour, I could have said it in five minutes. Sometimes it's true, true, but frequently it's a lack of appreciation of what learning is. It's a process, not what you it's not only the process. It's, it's the of details. You Des- lack of understanding. It's the, right. If you don't appreciate the discernment, a professor can say similar things four or five times a different class. It's not the same thing. Frequently, they're similar. Frequently, his intent is to show the distinctions between them. And if you don't have enough brain power, and, enough, and really, it's more than brain power. It's a background in learning... Your tendency to simplify is so strong. Your tendency to, to, to make it simple so you feel like you're not overwhelmed by it is extremely powerful. And I, and I remember doing this as a 16 year old, as a 17 year old, and going to my teacher, my mashbiya, and we just sit and talk for lots and lots of times. And I'd repeat to him what he said, and I'd get these funny faces that meant interesting, but you're still not working. And I would get so upset. Here I was, most of my friends were wasting their time, and I was actually analyzing and thinking and writing. I have these papers today. Pages and pages and pages and pages. And I could never get an unconditional compliment. Never. It was like, well, let me tell you what you missed. Let me tell you what you did wrong. Now when you're 17 years old, you don't exactly want to hear that. And at a certain point, I started to tell my mashbir what I felt. I said, you can't give me an unconditional compliment? So he said to me, the greatest compliment I can give you is criticize your work. Now, I understand that now. I didn't understand that 25 years ago. Now I'm a teacher and I'm doing the same thing to my students. I want you to appreciate what's transpiring in this engagement, in this interaction. A person teaches. They're saying a lot of information. A lot of different things. But the information are like blocks. Information are arranged. It's the strings, it's the wires being the information, which is creating something original, something enlightened, a new concept. But just like the wires bring the blocks of that development, of that construct together, they also keep them apart. Like in an atom, right? The particles of an atom are kept together by a force and kept apart by a different force. And if an atom would collapse, it would take up no space but have no reality. The same is true of ideas. When someone teaches, they introduce you to a lot of details, they put them in respective places, create relationships between those different things, and simultaneously create bridges, wires, connections, between the various different components to create an organic thing, a really living thing, where each piece is not only necessary, but each piece is completely integrated with every other component, And keeps them apart. Because if it all crunches together, you have what's called in Kabbalah, confusion, entanglement. Which is the opposite of his orderly integration. So here you are, sitting in a class, and you have a teacher. He's an artisan, he's an expert. And he's communicating, he's constructing an intellectual edifice for his disciples, for his students by introducing him to one piece of information, and a second piece of information, and a third piece of information, and he's stringing them together. And of course, one of the healthiest mechanisms of healthy education is the technique of question and answer. Observation, analysis, question and answer. It's very engaging. It, 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 helps this, it, it, it creates parameters. It helps the student think. But in the final analysis, what the teacher is doing, he's creating an idea, using different details, putting them all together, and keeping them all apart. The student, usually it's not adequately trained in reason, doesn't understand why there are so many what he would view as vestigial components. You know you know what vestigial means? Like they used to speak about tonsils, you know, unnecessary pieces. You know, a hundred years ago medical doctors thought that a human body has a hundred extra pieces. Then they're down to one or two is not even sure about those one or two. So much revolution. Okay, so when you listen to a teacher teach and he says so many different things, you're not sure why each piece is there. Why not? Because you don't really understand. Understanding means identifying each aspect individually and appreciating the unity, the organic oneness that is developed between these pieces, not at the expense of the details in context of the details. If the details are going to become crunched together, if the different aspects, the thoughts, are going to be lost as individual aspects by the virtue of the fact that they've been strung together, you just killed it. They remain distinct aspects that join, the fuse together to create a living concept. So what do you do as a student? And I've done this a hundred times. Someone teaches you stuff. It's a little bit over your head. You're in that world and you're certainly curious. What you don't lack is passion. You, you, you want to know. And the teacher teaches, and it seems to you that he's using a lot of extra words. He wants to sound smart. So you take a file, and you want to sand away the rough edges, and make it nice and curvy and beautiful. And what you don't appreciate is that those rough edges are the links to the next ideas, to the infinity of knowledge. So you come over to your teacher, you've heard this, this brilliant lecture which is defined by details and aspects strung together. And like I said to you before, kept together and kept apart to be organic, to be alive. And you want to simplify it. And the teacher listens to you and says, you know, you worked very hard. You listened to what I said. You heard my information. You didn't distort my message. You processed it. You got it down to an essence. You distilled down the, the communication to a thought. But you're simplifying. And the student wants to punch the teacher in the nose. Why can't... Why have we mean? Why can't you say I'm a genius? Why can't you compliment young additional? Of course the answer is because my job is to teach. And teaching means to keep the passages of knowledge open. Not to diminish them. This is what happens. This is the struggle of learning how to learn. Learning how to learn is not gathering and retaining Facts. That's not learning. That's facts. Learning got to learn how to analyze facts and how to understand facts and to see the unity in facts. And the greater one's mind, the more one's capacity for seeing unity. But you see, when a person has a great mind, has a greater capacity for seeing unity, it's never at the expense of the individual aspects. They remain distinguished. They remain separate. They remain individual. And yet, because he has a deeper mind, he sees unity. He sees beauty. He sees Elegant, he sees organization, but never at the expense of the aspect. Because if it's at the expense of aspects, he's not a smart person. He's not. He's a generalist. He's a basically person. He's a pseudo intellectual. It's not called real learning. And this is one of the problems that real scholars have when they talk to lay people. It drives them nuts. They really, they just, they don't even bother explaining things. Because the lay person doesn't even understand what he doesn't understand. You know? And when you don't understand what you don't understand, there's so much background information that's necessary to put you into that world. So it gives you a thought, interesting, we're all excited, but really understanding involves appreciating detail. This is called Prat. I'm going to get to you momentarily. This is called analyzing something in its specifics, in its individual details. So Kabbalah says, Ego ain't sof is katmus. Its tendency is to generalize and to simplify, to file away those rough edges, those aspects that don't seem comfortable, when all of the depth is in those rough edges. All of the future links are in those aspects. The credibility of the knowledge is in those little nuances. And Yosha, which is representative affinity of gvul, is called gadlus and prat, because it goes into things in a very, very specific, in a very, very narrow, in a very, very... Local way. And that's what learning really is about. Um, I think science played English. Um, and the way I thought. What's the thing. Is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is what my students tell me. You know. You didn't explain it. I, I'm so confused. But they're open. They aren't basically people. They're well, we all are basically people. <laughs> I, uh, it's not about age; it's about skill development. It's not—I don't think it's about age. It's about—it's about intelligence. Not everybody is that smart, but it's really about learning how to learn. Yeah, and this is what I'm trying to teach them. My question is: What? I don't know if this is on. It's the not. Topic. <laughs> um, well. Maybe it is because yeah. right, a person wants to go into depth and learn and, and doesn't understand, okay, that, that confusion could motivate the person to push further, or frustration could, you know, cause the person to give up. Oh, what I think mostly to give recommend? up, probably. I find frustration causes people to give up and yeah. not try. Sure. Right. Listen, as a teacher to a teacher. Cherish your good students, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I do. Okay. That, uh, do I have to deal with they're, they're uh, Of course, of course. Unfortunately, our model of education, and I really don't want to go into this, this is not an education class, we've created a liberal arts model of education, which means we want our kids to be jacks of all trades and masters of none. It's, it's a very bad model. Mm-hmm. And we're all stuck in it. Um, not everybody's meant to be an intellectual. But there is not an intellectual in the world who's a generalist. It just doesn't exist. Mm. Knowledge is becoming more and more specialized, because that's what knowledge is. Mm. So why is it that we raise our kids to be generalists, if we want them to develop minds? And the development of the mind is the antithesis of being generalists. The model of education that we have is poor. And that we can argue about this all day and all night... (coughs) But I believe that at a very young age, maybe even teenage years, maybe even high school, children should choose. They shouldn't learn a little of this, and a little of this, and a little of this. They should choose. And they should go where their heart wants. And the greatest motivator is interest. That's a student Sunday classroom. Pardon? No, it's called common sense, which is most uncommon. And I own the rights to that too. (laughs) Go ahead. You're right. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't want to go into education. Forgive me. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is that the motivated students don't say that. The ones who have a personal interest find a way to succeed. It's the kids who are going to school to get through school, which is most kids. If a child has an interest, to... as frustrated as a child becomes, they figure it out. They keep yeah, so they figure it out the problem is most of our kids go to school to, to pass and they have a, a higher education but it's not about the knowledge there's another problem there's a lot of we get, we teachers start with who just go to get paid that's true yeah. go ahead I got two points first point being that uh, just to briefly go a bit, you know liberal arts is to introduce a, a, a young mind to other aspects to help them up to give them a direction to give them the availability for the option but wait let me you know, just me really interrupt you that's very useful in every way except the development of the mind. It creates curiosity. In other words, it, it, it's like you said, like it's an adult, uh, a lay person who keeps up with the sciences and There's reads a adults. medical journal. But t- to learn how to learn, yeah. you need to learn one thing. Okay. Uh, the next point is did you say that this is a circle? Uh, is a, a circle is equivalent to emotion and a line is right. equi- equi- uh, equivalent to intellect. That's right. Then why do you say that intellect is a circle because it's infin- infinity? It's no, finite. I didn't say that intellect is infinity. So the In, emotions are infinity. Right, but you said... Intelligence is infinity, because intelligence, you just said that intelligence... Okay, but it's created, you're right, I did say that. It's created by individual aspects. The infinity of knowledge is not in its simplicity. The infinity of knowledge is in its subtlety, in its nuance, in its pieces. Not in its being generalized. Now... There are two Hebrew words that are incredibly useful in this context that mean virtually the same thing. We've talked about them on previous occasions, and it's very, very relevant now. But l- let's go over our terms. Okay, let's review what we learned. We started off the class with the two terms, godly soul and animal soul. We employed the Kabbalistic forms of ma and ban, which we defined as adam and behem, a man and animal. What is ma? Memhe, Mem and Bam is Beis Nun. Right. <laughs> then we correlated Adam and Behema to Yosher and Eagle. Adam, the man, the human being, is called a line, the animal is called a circle. In other words, we're associating the animal with infinity and the human being with finity. Although the, the, the intuition of the person would be to say the human being is greater than the animal, so arguably the human being is infinite and the animal is finite, but that's not the case. And we employ two more sets of terms. <coughs> katnus and Gadlus. Katnut and Gadlut. The circle is Katnus, immature, underdeveloped. And the line is developed. And Klal and Prat, general and specific. The, the animal, infinite, immature model generalizes. That's its tendency. And the man, line, finity. Uh, mature model tends to be very specific and very analytical of detail. Those are two different worlds. They're completely different worlds. They're fundamentally different. Now, there are two terms that would fit right into this discussion at this particular juncture, And the two terms are ta'aruvus and hiskalalus. Ta'aruvus means mixed together and hiskalalus means together. Like the word rav, which means many, and the word kol, which means all. And in Kabbalah, for those who care, the word Rav, Reh Beis, is, is a term that associates with animal, with Klipa, with asa. And the term Koil, Chof Lamed, which means all, is a, ser, a term associated with Kedusha, with Ya'en Kavavinu. means an entanglement. Can you say the, other again? The, the short is two letters, Reh versus Chof Lamed. Okay. The, the long word is Ta'aruvis. You know to spell that? You write in Hebrew, Yes. Tough Ayin reish, Vav Beis Sof. Taruvus, like uh, when there's no let that's called taruvus. Okay. Hiskalalus is Hey Sof Chaf, Lamed Lamed Vav Sof. The difference between the word taruvus and hiskalalus means taruvus means an entanglement. You have a lot of things and they're all mixed together, chaos. Some people celebrate chaos, in disorder, in entanglement, and in confusion. There's infinite possibility. It's true, but it's chaotic. It's disorderly. His scholarly also has many, 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 many components, many, many parts, but each has a distinct place. And they're strung together in a constructive way. There is not one aspect, one piece, one detail in the model that doesn't have a place. That's the chaos. The, no, that's the orderly one. And his scholarly is defined by the distinct place and usefulness of each aspect that is then strung together to create a healthy whole. I'm going to give you a very simple example for this. A living thing. A living thing is made up of pieces that are made up of smaller pieces that are made up of smaller pieces and smaller pieces and smaller pieces virtually ad infinitum. There are limbs and there are cells and there are strings of molecules, and there are individual molecules, and there are individual atoms, and there are atomic particles, and subatomic particles, and subatomic particles. And what's incredible about all this is that the lower you go, the finer you go, the more incredibly order, orderly it is. Right? If a person has a problem on a, on, a, <coughs> on a cellular level, they have a problem. If a person has a problem on a molecular level, it's a much bigger problem. If a person has a problem on a nuclear level, it's it's deadly. Because on the final level, order becomes all the more important. And the sign of health is order. A human body is made up of so many parts, each one has a place. Brain is a good thing. Two brains is death. A heart is a good thing. Two hearts, Abi Alokha and Abi Amatias, is the opposite of life. Everything needs to have. This, you need one brain, one heart, two eyes and so forth. Everything has a place. And the finer and the finer you go, the more you find this. So the, a, a, a living thing is defined by having a variety of different limbs, each one has its own place. Each limb is made up of many, many, many individual cells, each cell has its own walls, its envelope. And there's no leakage. A healthy cell is self-contained. it's a living thing. Within each cell, there are cellular components, organelles. Each one of those is healthy and self-contained, and there's no leakage. Within those organelles, there are molecules. Each one is healthy. All the way down to the finest levels. When does a person get sick? When that order begins to break down. It doesn't matter on which level. When there's chaos in a body, in a small level, that's the beginning of death. Right? There's a term which is so useful because it's so... uh, It has such an enormous colloquial uh, pun. Free radicals. Free radicals means pieces of the body that are operating like mercenaries. They don't have a place. They're bouncing around like a billiard board in the, in the body, billiard ball in the body. And they trigger what they call chain reaction. They trigger other electrons. They trigger the body to slowly come apart on a, on a nuclear level, on a very, very deep level. The sign of health is order. And to give you some Kabbalah for the evening, as though I haven't given you any yet, <laughs> the Rabbein B'chai tells us, Rabbein in embraces, that before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were supposed to live forever. And there's an enormous discussion in the theologians is this possible? Can this biblical statement, Vachaili Eilim, living forever, be taken literally? And of course, as can be expected, this becomes a division between the mystics and the philosophers. The mystics say, why not? And the philosophers say, that's ridiculous. So the philosophers say living means living a long time, like a thousand years, rather than a measly 930. <laughs> um, and the mystics say, no, no, it's literally true. So the Rabbeinu B'chaye, who lived 700 years ago, says something incredible, because he describes cell regeneration 500 years before cells were discovered. And he uses the Hebrew term, from the word tmura, that means to replace, to regenerate, to renew. He says a body has a regenerative power, an ability to recreate itself, and there's no reason that the regenerative power within a person should not continue to be renewed indefinitely. As long as the cell continues reproducing and recreating, you won't age. You remain healthy. The deficiency in the regeneration of cells is something which biologists, medical doctors don't understand anybody is over 35 you should know that it's been medically established as a matter of fact that when you reach 35 or 36 years which is what it says in halacha something happens to your body and the ability to renew cells is deficient and there's no scientific explanation it's just a fact the expectancy of a person's life is 70 years the moment a person turns 35 plus the ability to renewal of cells is deficient it's not because of diet it's not because of the air you're breathing, it's just the way the body was designed. And until that point, your body renews cells, blood cells are recreated, what, in 84 days? I don't know the numbers. Right? Very frequently, and until a certain age, every cell created is as new as the ones you had when you were a baby. At a certain point, the body goes deficient. The source of that deficiency is Adam and Chava, is Adam and Eve. Had Adam and Eve not eaten from the tree of knowledge, they would have been godly people. Being godly people is not some mystical, esoteric idea. Oh, what's that too? It would have meant that biologically they would have been in such a state of health that there'd be no reason for them to die. they just continue re- renewing themselves. Because their biology physiologically would reflect harmony between soul and body. And the Abed says this. And their body would regenerate. Alternatively, once man ate which Tree have knowledge of good and evil, death was introduced to the world. Death does not mean people die. Death means every living thing has deficiencies at its core. Free radicals are part of their basic condition of human beings after the original sin. And those aspects of imperfection which are built into the model of every living thing guarantees that everything dies. Some sooner and some later. And it all has to do with disorder. With chaos. At first it's chaos on a tiny level in a small area and it takes over the person. The terms that connote that mean order and disorder are hiscalavos and taruvus, Entanglement and orderly interconnection. Orderly interconnection means ein lach davashe, ein everything has its own time, everything has its own space. A healthy body is not defined by all the cells crunching together. By all the limbs looking the same. Everything has its space and its definition and its order. The whole is healthy because the aspects are healthy. And the aspects are healthy because the sub-aspects are healthy. This is the sign of a healthy living thing. And the smallest measure of disorder ultimately results in complete chaos, which is the neshamah can't stay in the body, and that's death. This is the idea of Yoshit and Eagle. This is the idea of adam and Behema. This idea of the animal soul and the godly soul. The animal soul and the godly soul, the animal soul is defined by detail and order. The animal soul is defined by chaos and brute force. So the animal is stronger than the man. The animal is stronger than the man. But there's that health, that constructiveness, that usefulness that comes from emphasizing detail, the animal doesn't have that strength. It's the strength of the godly soul. The godly soul is all about detail and order, and ultimately, the godly soul lives forever. Go ahead. Just, uh, just a I don't know what the word "just" means, but go ahead. Basically, I, <laughs> I rest my text. Go ahead. I've been a teacher for a while. Go ahead. Pardon. Entangled, right? You have here. You know what it means? Entangled. Okay, and that That's one is, is chaos. That's right. And his, his kalut or his kalut is what? What's the definition? Orderly interconnectedness. Yes. Have a lot of things. That's right. We'll write that down. Orderly interconnectedness. Okay. The word yosher, is it like yashar? Yes. yes. Straight. Yeah. Is it the same as kav? Yes. Okay. And there's really three. The yamin and the smell and the emsa. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> uh, we, can we say, where is it? It's in the, mind, it's in the heart. I'll get to that soon. I'm going okay. to get there. In Kabbalah, there are two terms: Me'oid and Adam. Me'oid means infinity. Adam means man. Me'oid and Adam are the exact same letters. Because according to Kabbalah, there is infinity in Adam, just as there is infinity in Me'oid. Me'oid means raw, animalistic, basic, general infinity. Adda means order and detail and nuance, infinity. Kabbalah says there is infinity, infinity, just like there's infinity and in infinity. There's bli and gavol. Finite things are actual expressions of infinity. Every living thing is an expression of God. There's no way in the world you can use common sense and decide that this happened by mistake. Impossible. Even if you're talking about a cell of yeast... Impossible. It's magic. It's incredibly organized. It's godly. It's literally living things are an expression of God. Kabbalah says, just like everybody appreciates that infinity is an expression of God, order is an expression of God. In order there is infinity. The infinity in order is in the degree of order. You look at a living thing, it's organized. Just two hands, Just ten fingers, just three digits on each finger, and two on the uh, thumb. What kind of miracle that is? We take this all for granted. Someone gets sick, we agree with that there's so many healthy people, so many blessings we don't see. Why? What's good, who cares? What's no good, we complain about. Mm -hmm. It should be perfect, right? But that's called Mashiach. There's so much incredible goodness around us, but we're busy. A finite thing that has order the order doesn't stop in the limbs and the wires don't get crossed and the pipes are all working and there's no leakage the cells have to have order the molecules have to have order the atoms have to have order the atomic particles have order deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper so a little tiny thing is actually infinite not in its expansiveness but in its subtlety and its nuance just like a true idea is infinite even though ideas by definition are not infinite because you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and any layer you're going to examine, you're going to find new enlightenment, new order, new subtlety, new nuance, new unity, and new distinctions. Every living thing is an expression of the Ain Saf, not in its Ain Saf, but it's in, in, in its limitation. It's infinite in its seididid, in its order. So to be sure, eagle and yashir, which means infinity, infinity, is actually two expressions of the infinite. A simple expression of the infinite and a complex expression of the infinite. A raw animal expression of the infinite and a subtle nuanced, detailed expression of the infinite. And Adam ha'alin, the concept of the supernal man is as much infinite as ma'ayid ha'alin, as the raw, as the core, as the basic infinity. But they're very different. One is infinite in its simplicity and one is infinite in its detail in spite of the fact that it's so limited and so neatly packaged. And this sets the stage, this enlightens the difference between the, the animal soul and the godly soul, and it defines the drama of their meeting. <coughs> Kabbalah says, al says in Danya, the animal soul lives in the heart, surprise. And the godly soul lives in the mind. Surprise. Because their entire identity and therefore their technique, of taking over the city, which means the human being is rooted in their core. The animal soul's power is in its power. And the godly soul's power is in its subtlety. According to Kabbalah and according to Hasidus, true knowledge is only Torah. Because the true idea of being able to dissect something indefinitely and never reach a point where you can say, well, now we got to be basic and general. There's nothing further to understand. It's only true in Torah every other chokm, every other idea, area of learning, breaks down. In other words, other areas of knowledge ultimately come to a point of cloud, of basically, of generalization. Tehidah is infinite. The infinity of tehidah is not that it's just this massive ball of energy. The infinity of tehidah is in the analysis of the words, individual words of the Tanakh, of the the tehidah. And you can analyze and analyze and you'll literally never finish. Because it's God's infinite wisdom wrapped into a finite number of organic words and letters that you can study and study and analyze and discover and so forth and so on. So the godly soul and the animal soul are are completely different characters with completely different strengths. Emphasis on the word strength. The animal soul has power. He's a good competition for the godly soul. And the godly soul has sophistication and is good competition for the animal soul. It's a real war. Where they, the combatants are at least in principle using very, very different techniques. The animal soul's power in is in his raw force. It is in animalism. The godly soul's power is in his willingness to analyze the truth. I, I have an obsession. I have something I need to tell you something. This is really not that relevant that's a subtle way of saying I'm not answering your questions. <laughs> um, but I do want to mention it anyway. Rambam, the Ben-Namish wrote a work of philosophy. It's called <laughs> Merin of To call the Rambam intelligent is an insult. I mean, the greatness of the Rambam's intellect is no one will ever know. If you've studied the Rambam's writings, you make an interesting discover, discovery that virtually every good idea that you read in any sefer of Musid, any theological work written since the Ramam's times, are rooted in Amba. Incredibly creative. A million and one new ideas. Mamish. Just so many original thoughts. And I want to share with you two commentaries that Amba makes against Aristotle, whom the Rambam was veiling himself behind. People have this simplistic, this basic notion that the Rambam was enamored <clears throat> with Aristotle. Ramam was enamored with the truth. People were enamored with Aristotle. So the Ramam wrapped his truth in Aristotelian form. But all the fundamental beliefs of Aristotle, Ramam disagrees with. I want to share with you two, um, two, uh, two Maimonidean insights that, in a very subtle and a profoundly intellectual way, argue the difference between generalization, basically, and nuance and subtlety. Okay? The first one is when you have no proof for something, you do not have proof that it is not. When you can't prove something, you haven't disproven it. Which is a fundamental mistake made by so many intellectuals. If I can't prove something, all I've proven is that I have no proof. But not that I have proof that it isn't. Right? Yes, the simplest example is God. If you cannot prove God using a microscope, you don't have proof that there isn't a God. You simply have proof that the microscope can't prove it. That distinction, that separation between not being able to prove something and proving that it is not, is, is the line between subtlety and simplification. And you will be shocked at how many intelligent people make that correlation, make that link. That if I can't prove something that means it's not true, you know, Aristotle's fundamental belief is if it's irrational, it's false. If it doesn't make sense, then it's a lie. This, this, is, you know, this is a core philosophical truism. It's te- is a, is a subjective statement. It's a statement that makes himself God. And in the own words, if you have no proof for something, you don't know that it is or it isn't. You just know you have no proof. And that's called being intellectually honest. And it's a subtlety. Has incredible ramifications. Another example of this, or it's virtually the same, but it's still a different statement, is the observable world cannot be the criteria for what is true and false. We live in the reality. We live in the reality means we have a certain preconception. The preconception we have is that this exists. The problem with the preconception of what this exists is that when we're trying to be truly rational, in other words, trying to think about ideas in, in terms of absolute truth, absolute truth means to say that this is real not to me and here and now, but really true, we allow the world we live in to define what's true. Or to say it more correctly, we allow our observations of the world we live in to define what's real, and it's completely subjective. Our point of view, or the the physical universe as we see it, doesn't reflect the truth. It reflects the physical universe. And if you want to know what the truth is, and of course your only frame of reference is the physical world, you have to be able to departmentalize, use the physical world, analyze it. But analyze it objectively, never allow yourself to be restrained by your observation. Never allow yourself to say, this is what I see, this is real. Again, the simplest example is the question of whether there's a God or not, right? There's no proof that there is a God, is a statement many people make. Now, what's the truth? Of course, there's a proof that there's a God. You're a proof. I'm a proof. Our existence is proof. Well, how does it prove it? How do we get here? All of the answers don't answer the question, they deflect it. In other words, when you look at an existence and you say, well, it already exists, so that it exists, it's a fact. Now we're going to analyze how it got here. That's that's it's fundamentally flawed. You have to say how could existence be, assuming non-existence exists. That's objective reasoning, and these two philosophical arguments really become sort of the basis of the Rambam's arguments with the philosophers. Number one, when you don't have proof for something, you haven't disproven it. And number two, you cannot allow the reality you perceive it to become the basis of your rational thinking. You have to be able to be, you have to be able to be dispersed, have to be objective to the degree where what you see and what you know don't become the basis for how you reason. Because if you do, it's not real reason. Like I said, these are points that are in my guts. The relevance of that to this is because that's called being really, really nuanced. It's called really, really being subtle. Having said that, let's return to our world. Because these are examples of the difference between generalizing and really thinking in details. And it's an endless process of being critical with one's own mind. You know, to become intellectually lazy, you're not intellectual anymore. That's right. Now, Getting back to the issue. Getting back to the issue. We're discussing the godly soul and the animal soul. And this is, so to speak, the end of the road for us. Mitzham, next time we get together, which will be in two weeks hence, remember, I will not be here next week with Hashem's help. We're going to start talking about the war between the godly soul and the animal soul. At this juncture, we're summarizing, we're concluding our definitions of the godly and the animal soul. And we sort of simplified it as follows. The animal soul's force is in its sheer power, in its wave mechanism, in its force. The godly soul's uh, definition is in its subtlety and in its nuance. Therefore, the seat of the animal soul is in the heart, the seat of the divine soul is in the mind. That makes complete sense. But I want to finish the class with an interesting idea, which is mentioned in one particular discourse in Hasidus. It's not very, very widely Disgust. But it's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And if you'll remind me, I'll, I'll uh, when I finish with that, I'll say one more thing beyond that also. And that is like this. The animal soul is emotional, although it has a mind. But the mind is a generalist because the heart inclines, disposes it to it. The godly soul is, is, is all about nuance and subtlety. And he... He weakens, he softens, he quiets the passions uh, accordingly. So there's a particular Maymit in Hasidis. It's called Nerchanikares <coughs> The first half of the Maymir talks about the godly soul, and the animal soul, using the heart mind model. The second half of the Mayymit goes up to the level of the essence of the soul. Remember the essence of the soul? What does the essence mean? In essence, it means absolutely it's, nothing. Essential. Another example of pseudo-intellectualism. Essential. <laughs> right. And as I have told you the definition of the word essence, anything in its relationship with itself, that's how we're defining the term. You can have a different definition, but it better be rational. So the mind says something brilliant. The essence of the soul has two dimensions. And they're called two aspects. Tevaha ha'etzem and muhus ha'etzem. The nature of the essence... And the uh, the character of the essence, or the essence of the essence, kavah the essence, of, the nature of the essence, and the mahu, the what is, the character of the essence. Now you know if you pay attention that we talked about the animal soul. I employ the word tivi. Remember when I talked about the divine soul, I used the word pnimi. Well, those same two words apply now. Says the Maimed. The nature of the essence of the soul is fire. The nature of the... I'm sorry. The what is, the character of the essence of the soul is wind. And he explains. The nature of the essence of the soul is fire. The character of the essence of the soul is wind. Right? You know about fire, wind, water and earth. Everybody assumes that fire is the highest element not according to the Arizo. Because fire without wind cannot burn. It goes away. It just disappears. It's general, it's basic, it's simplistic. You need air, you need oxygen to create fire. And What does the oxygen do? It expands the fire, it holds it. And to use a form that I employed in an earlier class, the nature of the essence of the soul is fixed in a personality that it cannot escape. It's very forceful but there's a person, personality. The essence of the essence of the soul, or the, the, the character essence of the soul, is freedom. And its tendency to go down, to come down into details. Which is, again, the same model on a much higher level. Yoy and and gulim. A circle and a line on the essence level. And I want to finish the class with a, with a final thought. Jewish people and God are in a perpetual disagreement. Okay. I have permission from God to say this. got a Here's my note. <laughs> when you finish with the Nuts. note, give Nuts. it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know how to read it. <laughs> I don't know, just take a chance. I'll read it <laughs> I don't know how to read it either. Don't feel bad. <laughs> and the disagreement is as follows. The Jewish person, the Yid, comes out into this world, lives, studies Teirah and does mitzvahs. his entire endeavors to get out of here. I don't mean this Chasashol in the sense of death. I mean the sense of raising yourself above the world. Coming closer and closer to God. And in philosophical form, to go from the world of many to the world of one. God takes our soul, puts us into this world. He has the exact opposite priority. God wants us to bring Him to every detail of the creation. Our tendency, the soul's tendency, is to rise. God's will of us is to descend. We want to go from a lot to one. He wants us to go from one to many. Or in the classic language of the Pigeavus, you're forced to live and you're forced to die. And of course, the question is asked. If you're forced to live, then you should want to die. If you're forced to die, you should want to live. How can you be forced to live and forced to die? The answer is torn. We have our own personal interest. And we have the interest we've inherited from our purpose, from our Creator. Our personal interest is to leave this world. To become generalists. To swim in each To go up into the circle. God's interest, which He imposes upon us, is to go away from the circle, into the line. To bring Him down. And these are two models within Judaism itself. There's the part of Judaism which is about getting close to God. And there's the part of Judaism about bringing God into His world. And the difference between those two is the same between basic and specific, between the circle and the line. And God's interest is to bring God into the aspects of His creation, rather than make them disappear. Now in Kabbalah, in general, this is different between Tayyu and Tikkun, between Kedusha and Klipa. But in specific, it becomes a debate amongst the Kabbalists. It really comes down to it. And you see here how Hasidus is loyal to the Kabbalah of Darizah. Because, I mean, Hasidus, without a doubt, is interested in bringing down. The centerpiece of Chabad Hasidus is called Dira Tachtoin, making a home for God in the lowest realm, which is the idea of bringing the one into the many, not raising the many into the one. Not that the world should disappear, but that the world should be Godified. And the difference is, whether it's the world becoming raised up into a point, into a circle, or the circle manifesting in every little aspect of the creation. And there's no question this is the Chabad Hasidic priority. And in Kabbalah it becomes the difference between the Kabbalah of the Arizal and the Kabbalah of the Ramak, between the Yitzchayim and the Padis. The model of Kabbalah of the Arizal says... The end of time is godliness being manifest. The model of the Kabbalah of the Pades says, the end of time is the world being raised up. And the difference between those two, in a very fine level, is the difference between, between man and animal, between circle and line. And of course, Hasidah says, everybody's right. Mm-hmm. The man and the animal don't destroy one another, they fuse. The strength of the man, which is the subtlety, affects godliness being brought down. The strength of the animal affects raising the world up, including it in godliness. And the divine purpose encompasses both. Now, in terms of philosophy, we're all geniuses. In terms of life, we will always be amateurs, because we have to contend with ourselves. And that's what matters. So philosophy aside... We've discussed the animal soul and the goddess soul for five weeks. We understand to some degree the differences in how they operate. Next week, we're going to talk about the war. Go ahead. Two weeks, no? Two weeks, Mr. Shem, yes. Okay, good.